Our scripture reading for today is taken from Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. And it reads as follows. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Great lesson on homiletics from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. Those of you who may be aspiring preachers out there, please uh, bear in mind that the three main principles for effective preaching are found in that one verse. We'll turn to that in just a moment and talk a little bit more about it. But I want to start with the beginning, if we may, of Nehemiah chapter 8 with this particular preface in mind. The uninformed, that is, until we learn more about what God's will for us is and how that God has revealed his will to us, may think that the Old Testament, since we are no longer to be living under the law of Moses or the patriarchal law, has no practical value for the Christian today. And I certainly want to acknowledge that in Nehemiah chapter 8, that we're going to be looking at almost exclusively this morning, that's not the church meeting. And those aren't Christians. But they are followers of God. They are part of God's chosen race. They are in a very special relationship with God. But it so happens that they have missed out on something. They have forgotten to do something that was critical to their faith. And their attention has been called to that. And now we're, we're finding their response to, oh, we should have been doing that all along. So as we enter the sacred confines of Nehemiah the 8th chapter, I think we find ourselves surrounded by people who have just an absolutely wonderful attitude toward the Bible. And that's why I want us to spend just a few minutes together with you this morning and talking about this glorious chapter. These folks have a tremendous attitude and a reaction to the Word of God. And I think even though that this is Old Testament stuff that we're reading about, that there is a wonderful example, what a powerful paradigm for us today, that we ought to approach God's word with the same degree of reverence and respect and appreciation as did they. The 18 verses that comprise this rather short chapter are just filled with expressions of that attitude of, of respect and appreciation. We're going to see that in just a moment. So let's begin at the beginning. Look with me for a moment. We'll see some people in their Bibles. And I want to get, begin, if I may, with the first two verses. And this, is, this constitutes their request for the Bible. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of, of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. We not only have what they're doing, we know when they're doing it even right down to being able to circle the date on our calendar. Because that that's the specificity with which God's inspiration is given in this particular chapter. I'm also submitting for your consideration this morning that you don't have to read very far into this chapter until you come away with the impression that the Bible was not forced on these people. It wasn't a matter of them having to have their arms twisted. They did not have to be coerced into an assembly. Let's meet out somewhere, you know, on the corner of this street and that avenue. And, and let's uh, spend some time with the word. No, there was no coercion at all involved in here. Nobody had to force it on them. They didn't have to be 
Didn't, didn't have to be a coerced again to, to, to investigate the claims of Scripture. Look at verse 1 in particular. It says that they made the request that the book be brought by Ezra, who, who was the scribe, to a place where they had already gathered on the street. It seems as if, this is not herd mentality here, but this is a group of people with the same mind and, and the same spiritual objective. And that is, we want to hear what God's Word has to say. And all of that is certainly honorable. And it's something that, that you and I ought to take very seriously in 2023. The reason for this is obvious in the text. They wanted to hear what was written in it. Now, you also have to appreciate the fact that in this particular culture at this time, there were very few folks who knew how to read. And that's why I suppose Ezra, the scribe, someone who spent his entire time and his basic occupation was copying the law, he would be the guy that they would ask to read. So we know he can read. We know he can read from the original language in which this is written. And so we're going to ask him to be the one who does the reading. Now, surely we have to agree that this is an absolutely wonderful spirit on the part of these people. It is, I believe, very similar to that which Jesus described when he said in Matthew 5 or 6, which, of course, is one of the Beatitudes, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know the rest of it, don't you? For they shall be filled. Now think about that. Blessed, fortunate, or happy are people who have an appetite for the word of God. Is essentially what Jesus was saying in that particular beatitude. It was certainly true with Ezra and these people gathered here on this street. And it's certainly true in our own day and time. That's a, that's a wonderful attitude for them to have. This type of attitude, by the way, toward the Bible, and I'm about to preach here, so hang on, would take care of most of the attendance problems that congregations have. And would certainly this desire to know more about the Bible would go far in eradicating the gap between Bible class attendance and worship attendance. And in the average congregation, there's always an appreciable gap in those numbers. But this attitude would also take care of uh, of just, I'm going to call it what it is, the, the concern or the annoyance that some people have about the length of sermons. I've been preaching for almost 54 years now. And you're thinking, it's about time to quit. <laughs> but but I, 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 don't, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had, usually one-sided conversations, right, Sam? When someone wants to discuss with me the length of sermons. And, and I also have to take that within the context of some of the men that I, and women that I know and appreciate very much who have spent their lives on the mission field. And to have conversations with them about how their, how their experiences go in, in the presentation of the Word of God. And, and how often that is just diametrically different from what we experience here in the United States. I mean, oftentimes, in, particularly in third world countries, people will sit on the ground, in the hot sun, for hours at a time, listening to the word of God being expounded upon, and then watch this, beg the preacher not to stop. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they're the ones who will be filled. And it's also always interested me that the persons who are the first to talk about attention spans and modern day audiences... By the way, if you've not researched that recently, 
The average attention span, at least according to the most recent research that I have, I have read, is 11 minutes. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> Again, think about the spiritual challenge that that is. And I know that you can abuse the time of the people who are sitting listening. And I've been in audiences where that happened, and sometimes I was the preacher. But by the same token, we have to recognize that, hey, we're living in enemy-occupied territory. We're living where there is a war going on. And sometimes it takes more than a 20-minute dose of God's Word to help to be able to, to meet that challenge. And so when we read this Old Testament example, we sure have to agree with Paul, who in Romans fifteen four said, The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, no, no, we're not bound by the Old Testament anymore, but we can sure learn something by the wonderful example of these people. And, and, and back to the attention span thing, the people who are, at least in my experience, who are most ready to, to talk about attention spans and modern day audiences are the ones who are least qualified academically to do so. They're just parroting usually what they've heard somebody else say about that matter. I, I, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's appropriate here. What is true in the financial world is also true in the spiritual world. Interest is always determined by investment. And if I have nothing invested in what we're doing here on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons, then I'm not going to have very much interest in it either. And so my attention span is not just a number, it's not just a statistic. It has to do with my interest in the holy, reverent word of God. Now watch this carefully. If we go back and read the footnote, especially in verse 3, you'll find the, uh, in our text the time that that service began. That is, that's, that's in the footnote at least of some Bibles. And it wasn't a 9 or a 10 or an even 11 o'clock service. It says they started, they started at dawn and it lasted until noon. And, and bear in mind, they, they were standing for most of this service. Secondly, look at verses 5 and 6. And, and let's appreciate their, their reverence and respect for the word of God. And Ezra opened the book. This is what they had asked him to do. He opened the book in the sight of the people for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it up, all the people stood up. Now here's a trivial matter before us. But this is, the, I imagine, the, the prototype of the modern day pulpit. He's standing up in a place higher in elevation than the rest of the people. Well, that's for two reasons. Number one, so he can be seen. Number two, so he can be heard. And, and we still have raised pulpits in, in our day for exactly those same reasons. But Ezra, notice this, bless the Lord, the great God. What a great way to begin a service. He blessed the Lord. And then all the people answered, amen, amen. While lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. All of this bespeaks their reverence and respect, not only for the word of God, but for the God who had revealed that message to them. Here is undoubtedly a great show of respect that, uh, for the book that, that, again, contains the revealed will of God. Certainly, the level of respect can be communicated in a number of ways. And I realize we read this, that, that it's not necessary for us to assume all of the, 
uh, physical positions or postures that this, this audience did in order to demonstrate that respect, although I've seen that done. When, uh, back in the 1900s when I was at Freed Hardman College, it, it was not uncommon. In fact, it was a very common practice when every day in chapel we would have scripture reading we would stand. The whole student body and all the staff would stand in respect for the reading of the Word of God. Do you have to do that to be a good Christian? No. But it is demonstrative, I think, of, of, of our respect and reverence for God's Word. Again, I'm not saying we've got to do all of these things, all these mannerisms in order to manifest that respect. But you'll please notice a key phrase here in verse 3. And, and I think this is really the, the, the meat of the matter. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Surely we agree that attention is paid to that for which we have the utmost respect. We were listening. And I think that any preacher today will tell you that exactly how we sit in the pew is inconsequential. What does matter is are we tuned in to what we're doing here? Are we listening to word, the word of God as it is being read and as it's being expounded upon? Here's a third thing that I learned from this great Old Testament example. And this is verses 14 through 16. And that was their reaction to the Bible. Let's read what it says. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So here's a, a religious observation that is to, supposed to have been taken uh, place with the Israelite people. And look at verses 15 and 16. And, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees and make booths as it is written. And then the people went out. I, I really focus on 16. The people went out. And brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God. And in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. Now when they learned, and this is really what I want us to draw out of this text, what they should be doing. When they learned about this religious observance, and I can almost imagine, can't you, the crowd looking at one another going, have we ever done that? Or maybe some of the older ones would say, how long has it been since we've done that? Here's what they did. They, this is profound, hang on to this. They went out to do it. They did what they recognized we have been neglecting for far too long. Now, it didn't really matter to them that this practice had been abandoned for a long time. And, and a little bit of research indicates that apparently their ancestors had not done this since the days of Joshua. We're talking about way back. I, I can't ever remember in my lifetime us observing this feast of the booths and, and, and doing any of this. So that still didn't change their attitude toward the need to do so. And that really is spelled out in verses 17 and 18. Take a look at, at those two verses. Here's my takeaway from that. There is no statue of limitations with the word of God. If we've been missing something that God's word tells us to do, it is no suitable defense to say, but it's been so long since we've done that. Think about that in terms of something that uh, is a wonderful privilege for every child of God. 
And that is for us to observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. What if, for the sake of argument, that we had not been doing that for a number of years or maybe even decades? And yet somebody opened up the Bible, turned to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 20, verse 7, or Acts 2.42, or a number of other places, and said, how, how long is it, do you, did your dad and mom ever do that? Do you, do you remember ever having observed the Lord's Supper? Well, I guess if we've gotten by without doing it for this long, there's no need, no. You're going to start doing it. Let's do what God's word has commanded us to do, at least by example and biblical precedent, and let's start doing it now. Now, I don't mean to read anything into the text here. I promise I do not. But it seems to me that these people weren't really trying to cast a reflection on anybody else who might not have been doing these things. This was a very personal, individual thing for them. Their only desire was to make sure that they were doing the will of God themselves. I think that's our challenge, isn't it? We can't certainly with one sermon, straighten out the entire religious world. But here's something we can do, church. We can make sure that we're doing to the very best of our ability what God's word and will says for us to be doing. If this is a command of God or if it's a biblical precedent, we talked about the last fundamental Sunday last month about how that those precedences are established in scripture and, and how that we can know what we ought to be doing in terms of worship and service and, and activity every day of our life. So if we find that we're not doing something that needs to be done, the honest heart, the heart of integrity is going to say, let's start doing that right now. That's true as students of God's word, isn't it? In your own private Bible study, and here I am assuming, and I think I have good reason for doing that, that you as God's people are into the book. This is not the only time you open your Bible or open your device to read and study God's word. The honest heart, anytime you find that there's something in God's word that you need to be doing that you have been neglecting, you're going to say, I'm going to start doing that. Or, if on the other side of that coin, there are things in God's word that you have been doing, that God has said you cannot practice those things and still reflect the life and the spirit and the integrity of Jesus Christ, you're going to stop doing it. Now, you don't have to have anybody to help you understand that, do you? Let's just do what God has said. It was to them a matter of personal concern and proper commitment. We are going to start doing this from now on. And they need to be applauded and commended for that, for that attitude. And notice especially at the end of verse 17. I absolutely love the fact that the Holy Spirit decided to inject this particular phrase. It says, and there was very great gladness. I can only imagine these people were not castigating themselves for the fact that we have neglected this. They're glad that we started doing it again. It, 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 here's the takeaway. And please take this home with you and, and, and store this up in your heart. If you want to be truly happy, if you want to have the joy of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life, here it is. Just do what God said. And you're telling me the Old Testament isn't relevant? What they learned is what we should learn and appreciate today.
going to be happy, just do what God says. And, and this is a principle that was later on reiterated by the Lord himself in John 13, verse 17. He said, if you know these things, happy or blessed are you if you do them. Some of the most miserable people on the planet are people who know God's word, but they aren't doing it. But Jesus said, if you have those two things in place, if you know God's word, and if you're doing it as consistently as you can, you're giving it your dead level best every day when you wake up to live for the Lord and to walk in this world for Jesus Christ, you're going to be glad. You're going to live a life of joy and happiness. And surely we can say that in every respect that what we find here in this chapter ought to be our attitude toward the word of God as well. Now, can we honestly say that our a proper attitude can be seen in our hearts and lives in our re request for the scriptures? When we sing, as Derek led us a moment ago in a verse of give me the Bible, do we mean that? Or is that just a song, you know, and, and the words just kind of slough off? No, that should mean something to the child of God. Give me the Bible. And if I, if I do that on a daily basis, I'm going to grow more and more into the image of Christ. What about in our reverence and respect for the scriptures? Do we love and respect this holy book? I'll remind you that this is not an ordinary book about extraordinary people. It's an extraordinary book about ordinary people. And if we approach it that way, we're always going to have a respect for the word of God. What about our reaction to the scriptures? You know, any preacher worth his salt will tell you that the greatest compliment that people can pay any particular sermon is not what they say about it in the church foyer. You know, some folks kind of give that obligatory good lesson so that they can get out. And, you know, church is different from a ball game. Ball game, you got to pay to get in. Church, you got to pay to get out. And the payment is in the coin of, hey, that was a good lesson. Now let me buy, <laughs> you know. Uh, no, any, any preacher worth his salt will tell you that the greatest compliment that you can pay any particular sermon is to leave this building and then go live that sermon out in your life. That's the test of an effective sermon. And by the way, that has great responsibility on those of us who are presenting it, but also great, perhaps greater responsibility on those of us who are hearing it and then hopefully heeding it. This book deserves our perpetual respect. Every effort to destroy the Bible, I am happy to say, has failed. Voltaire, who was an outspoken unbeliever, once said a hundred years from now, the Bible and Christ will be forgotten. You may remember this. And here is the irony of it in his case. The very room in which he spoke those words became a storehouse for Bibles. Voltaire had long been put in the grave while that house was being used as a storehouse for the word of God. And when the mother of David Hume, who was an infidel, was dying, she said to her son, son, I'm dying and you've robbed me of my faith. What can you give me in its place? And of course, he had nothing to give her, no assurance and no hope. And that's because, good friends, when you take the truth of God's book away from people, they are left in the same state as those Gentiles described in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, about whom Paul said the, these words, they are without God and without hope in the world. In a certain city in the old days, a group of bright young men came together and formed what they called the Infidel Club. And it was exactly what it sounds like. 
They were particularly proud of their naturalistic, atheistic worldview. And so one night they decided as a group to come together and to build a bonfire and to burn a Bible as a demonstration of their disbelief and disdain for this book. They appointed their president the honor of being the one to cast the Bible into the bonfire. But when it came time to burn that holy book, this young man He took it in his hands. He caressed its cover. He remembered the days when his mother used to read it to him as a child. And he held it for an inordinately long time until everybody else was embarrassed. And then rather than casting it into the fire, he laid that Bible on the table and he said, fellows, we'd better not destroy this book until we can find something better to take its place. I'm here to announce to you this morning emphatically that there is nothing better. For it is a book that we now possess because of the divine work of God. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring its vesper chime. And looking in, I saw up on the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all those hammers? So just one, he said, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word. For ages, skeptic blows have beat upon. And though the noise of falling blows is heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammer gone. This book will stand the test of time. Jesus Christ said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Will you not invest your life in things eternal while we stand and while we sing? Today is the day of salvation.